Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You don't understand, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am, let's face it. It was you, Charlie. Ahoy there, mateys, and welcome to Patented. It's a podcast all about the history of inventions. From History Hit, I'm Dallas Campbell. It's 1950-something. You've taken a stroll down to the docks in New York. Keep it clean. I'm talking kind of on the waterfront territory. Marlon Brando and thousands of other moody dockers are hard at work loading and unloading ships. It is skillful. It's labor intensive. It's incredibly slow work. For example, a typical cargo ship could contain tens of thousands of individual cases, cartons, bags, boxes, bundles, packages, drums, cans, barrels, crates, and the rest of it, all moved individually on and off ships. It would take days, sometimes weeks, for a ship to be loaded. However, skip forward to today and the amount of goods being shipped around the world has grown 40 times over. 90% of everything that you have around you now, sitting in your room, if you're sitting in a room, arrives to you by sea. Shipping really is the beating heart of the global economy. And yet it's pretty much invisible. We don't even think about it. We don't really think about where our stuff comes from. And if you go down to the docks today, you will barely see a soul. Ships are loaded with vast quantities of cargo in the time it would have taken Marlon Brando to turn up his collar and sigh. And there's one invention to thank above all else for this transformation. And it's a really humble thing. It is the shipping container, the the metal oblong box that we see everywhere. Today is the story of this humble invention, the metal box, and how it transformed our world and the lives of all those tied to the sea. My guest to tell this story is the very wonderful Rose George. She's a fantastic journalist, a brilliant author, who actually spent five weeks on board a container ship and wrote her book, Deep Sea and Foreign Going, about her experience. I like to think she went on that trip in order to prepare for this podcast.
Hey, it's lovely to have you on the show, Rose. We're kind of going a little bit back in time because I know I mean, you wrote your book on shipping containers a few years ago, but it's one of those stories that I absolutely love, partly because, as you correctly point out, it's one of those invisible stories. It's a story that people just don't know about, and yet it has a, such a massive impact on the way that we live on planet Earth. We're also enraptured by the digital revolution. We forget about things like shipping. So the container, for those, for the uninitiated, why is the container, by which I mean the, the, the big metal box that we see everywhere, those metal boxes, why are they so fundamental to everything? Well, they weren't always fundamental to everything. So shipping has always been fundamental to everything. So we can start with that. So transporting stuff by sea has been kind of fundamental since at least 4000 BC when a certain Egyptian queen sent a fleet of ships to the land of Punt. And brought back a giraffe. Wait, the land of what? Punt. The land of Punt. What's the land of Punt? Yeah, no one actually knows where it is. No, wait, hang on. This is a whole... I didn't... Wait. The land of Punt is... So Cleopatra, are we talking no, about? No, Hatshepsut. Oh, Hatshepsut, of course. Sorry, yes. So Hatshepsut sent a fleet down somewhere... I mean, there is a place called Puntland okay. in Somalia, but Puntland is not thought to be the land of Punt. Ah, they didn't have shipping containers, though, I'm guessing. Well, they didn't. But if you go back and look at Romans and stuff, I mean, they technically shipped stuff in containers, didn't they? They had amphora. How do you say that? Amphorae? Amphorae? I don't know. Amphora, yeah. Is that right? Amphora. I know what you mean. Those, in Asterix books, they always had amphora, those sort of jugs. Yeah, exactly, with the little, with the handles. But for most of shipping, even though we had sort of containerization at a certain level. It wasn't until, I think it was 1926, when a shipping, no, a luxury train from London to Europe decided that rather than schlepping passengers' baggage bit by bit, they would put them in some big boxes, then decided that they may as well put those containers on the ferry and then unload them on the train the other side. But that didn't really take off. But an American businessman who had a trucking line called Malcolm McLean, who was, who was, a visionary and in like the early 50s he he saw how shipping worked which was you stuck everything on board as best you could but if you had lots of kind of different items you then had to spend a lot of money paying people to get that stuff off the ship and it cost a lot of money it ate up a lot of costs all that just shifting stuff. So Malcolm McLean thought, why don't I put trucks on a ship? And then he pr proceeded from that to think, well, why don't I take the back of a truck off and put that on a ship? And from that idea, containerization was born. It's the shape of things that's important here. The fact that uh, all shipping containers are the same size means A, they stack very nicely on ships so you can get more mm. on them. And also these big things can be picked up by cranes. So yeah, so when you were just talking there, I was imagining Marlon Brando on the waterfront, you know, and all the dock workers in, in the harbours of New York, and that was their job to get things off ships. But suddenly if you've got a container, you can just pick it up with a crane and stick it on the back of the lorry, and then the lorry is the container. As you can imagine, this did not go down well with all the longshoremen and dock workers and Marlon Brando's. I could have been a contender. I could have been a container. You get the prize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wins the prize. So the first ship that Malcolm McLean organised was called the SS Ideal X, which is great. I mean, it sounds like it's something out of Marvel Studios. He sailed it from Port Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1956. And Freddie Fields, who was a senior member of the International Longshoremen's Association, was asked his opinion of this new containerization and this new way of doing things. And he said, I'd like to sink that son of a bitch. 
I can understand that. That's that's the problem. You know, new technology and new innovation comes along and it upsets the Apple cars. Yeah. And the trouble is people, you know, they might lose their jobs. So I can understand that. Well, they did lose their jobs. They were right. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah. Did Malcolm McLean, did he, you know, he came up with this, which is a relatively simple idea, which is let's have a standard size box. Mm. Makes the whole process much easier. Where did he come up with the idea from? From trucks, I think. So he knew you'd have standardised shapes on the back of a truck or a container. But the the other thing that Malcolm McLean, well, he didn't invent it, but which doesn't get credit, is that it wasn't just that you had this standard box, but you could click it on top of other boxes because of something called the twist lock. And the twist lock also had to be invented. That was another really, really fundamental innovation that you could stack these containers safely. On the corners of a, if you look in the corners of a shipping container, there are kind of holes at the top and holes at the bottom. And so if I put another container on top of my container, what happens is, are there little bolts that come down? or how does Well, they're, they're called twist locks. So they're, they're not holes. So they are locks and they're they twist and they stack together. I can't describe it any better than that, but you, I mean, if you go and look at a container, then it will have twist locks on it. That's how the gantry cranes pick them up as well. So that's how that whole kind of balletic, beautiful, I think it's quite beautiful. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's much more beautiful than it should be because it's also quite banal, just shipping, you know, stuff. I, I find there's something really satisfying. I, w- I went to, I was in South Korea few years back doing a thing about this very topic and I spent some time in a big South Korean shipyard just watching the cranes move these boxes and there is something really beautiful and elegant about the order and the, and the symmetry and the shape and the colours of all these different things there's something really quite nice about it but there was a it didn't sort of catch on straight away and it wasn't like everyone went, right we, this is how the world's gonna run now because presumably you had to sort of redesign ports it was a slow process and in fact the ship that i traveled on a Maersk container ship the captain on that ship the master of the ship had been at sea for 42 years and so his career had he had pretty much grown up with containers i remember i asked him what he thought of them when he first saw them and he remembered seeing them as a young cadet and and the captain on his ship saying, no, no, that'll never catch on. And slowly, you know, ships would carry a few at a time and then slowly, slowly, slowly as the... Because the economic advantages are so gigantic, I think you can reduce the costs by 35 times or something if you go from what's called break bulk cargo, which is all the separate stuff, to containers. I suppose the thing here is we're so used to the way that we live now. We get stuff transported to us from all over the world. And you make the point, you know, your title of your book, 90% of our stuff comes from shipping. It's absolutely transformative. If we, I'm just trying to imagine, that, you know, if we go back in time before we had container shipping, the stuff in your room, looking around your room, I can see in your room. Is that your sitting room now? No, it's my I mean, studio office. Or your, studio, your office. Very little of that would have existed because we, our stuff pre-containerization would have come from the local area we would have maybe had a sofa that was made down the road and a desk that was made up the road here it would all be pretty much uk based with a few obvious exceptions but suddenly because shipping stuff by container has become so cheap the whole world has become a manufacturing base and stuff comes from all over the place which is why there is an argument that without containerization we would not have globalization because how would we get it yeah just looking around the water probably is local I've got a statue over there that's made from clay. The clay is possibly local, but I can't guarantee that anything else is local and I can't guarantee that anything else did not come by ship. 
It's massive shipping and people just don't, it's invisible as well. It's totally invisible. It's interesting we're talking about this now because now in 2022, we've just lived through the pandemic and, and supply chain issues. So I think people are being a bit more aware now of, oh, there's stuff not on the supermarket shelves. But I, I'm not sure that this awareness goes into the whole chain of how we get stuff and who brings it. And what about those people who are like throughout the pandemic, there were thousands of seafarers who were stuck on their ships because they weren't allowed ashore because of COVID restrictions. The crazy thing as well, I mean, the shipping container, amazing, and it's transformed the world for these reasons. The fact that we can just kind of go online on Amazon and click buy now, and that simple click of a finger, which we imagine in this sort of digital world, we don't even see it. We see a picture of the product we might buy on Amazon, but it puts into action stuff in the real world. And I think people forget about that. There are real world consequences of buying stuff online, one of which is Amazon. I'll buy my thing and it comes over on a shipping container. But, you know, I I don't think the container necessarily is a pure force for good. There are definite downsides to it. Of course. Well, we've become become used to a, a system which is probably unsustainable in a way, and it creates all kinds of issues. Things like shipping miles. We talk about air miles all the time in terms of climate change, but shipping miles. Are shipping miles a thing? So ships have, for decades, basically done their own thing. Ever since like the 40s and 50s, when we used to have shipping news in the newspaper, but slowly it's retreated and retreated out of sight, really, or out of public consciousness. So the shipping industry has basically just been getting along with what it does and what it what it does which is now being understood and acted upon is burn the most disgusting fuel it's called bunker fuel it's the dregs really of what happens after you refine oil and that's what ships burn on the high seas but people in the shipping industry will say that their industry is the least damaging but it's you know it's all relative it's still got more emissions than germany crikey it's funny, I was actually, I was in Japan last week on a hydrogen storage ship. And the idea is that ships might be able to be run on hydrogen. Yeah, but I mean, there's all sorts of ideas. There's like people talking about going back to sail, people using hydrogen. But the thing is that you've got a fleet of what the numbers change, but like fifty to 80,000 ships. Some of them are pretty old. You're going to have to retrofit them all. And the only way you're going to get ship owners to retrofit existing ships is by making it economically appealing. You actually spent five weeks on a on one of these enormous ships. You went from England to Singapore. Can you just sort of describe it for us? First of all, kind of visually, what did it look like? And then maybe talk us through a little bit what life is like and how it all works. So the ship I went to see on was called the Maersk Kendall. And at the time, it was sort of a medium-sized container ship. So it carried 7,000 TEUs, 7,000 boxes. And we went on a very standard route which was Europe to Asia so England to Singapore via various ports in Germany and and we were going down we would go down the Suez Canal and then through the Indian Ocean carrying mostly empty boxes because that's the way trade goes isn't it wait so I was going to ask you is there a manifest so you can actually see what's in gold bars no there's no manifest on board and the crew do not know what they're carrying really so doesn't doesn't can you not like open one up and have a little rummage about just no Why would they carry empty boxes back to Singapore? Everyone needs boxes. Well, why didn't you fill them up? Do we not have trade with Singapore? We don't export to Asia very much. Uh So there were some boxes that were filled. But again, we didn't know. And the only way we could guess what was in them was to look at the hazardous materials manifest, which is carried on board. What was the most hazardous material? There was some acid in batteries. There was stuff that would catch fire if it encountered water, which I thought was quite interesting. So you're on this boat. So there's 7,000... Ship, 
Dallas ship. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I've got to call it, yeah, you mustn't call it a boat. You must call it a ship. You're on this giant. I mean, yours was a sort of middleweight one. They're absolutely enormous now. I thought it was giant. So the, the deck is flat. Well, it goes down a bit. There's a sort of hollowed out, and and then there's just stacked, stacked, stacked all these gazillion boxes. And what's what's the sort of crew like? So I got to Felixstowe, and I was standing there on the gangway, and two they're called ABs. So that's the crew, which is able-bodied seamen. Two of them came down to transport me up the gangway. Did you buy a ticket or did you just ask to... Maersk let me go for free, actually, which is very nice of them. I was the last passenger they allowed through because it was the height of Somali piracy. Oh, I'll come on to that. I should just point out Maersk, by the way, if you're not familiar with the name Maersk. They are, I think, the biggest shipping... Second biggest currently. Second biggest, is that right? Okay, but you see the name Maersk, M-A-E-R-S-K. Thank you. But they're like like one of the biggest companies in the world. And yet, again, a bit invisible. No one's really heard of Maersk. Yeah, they've got the same income as Microsoft. Anyway, so Maersk, they're giving you this free ticket because you're a journalist. So yeah, I approached them because at the time they were the biggest shipping company in the world. And, and I said, please, can I go aboard? And they said no. So then I kept asking and eventually they said yes. And so I, I was taken and shown what's called the accommodation house. So you have the deck, which is covered in containers. And then you have this boxy structure plonked on the ship, which is the accommodation house. But it's also, it's the everything house because it's where you sleep, it's where you eat, it's the gym, it's the offices, it's the engine room, it's the bridge, it's all in the same thing. And you go in there and the the decor is kind of institutional prison. There's nothing homely about it whatsoever. My quarters, I was in a senior crew quarters and they were really nice, Um, like a sort of relatively decent hotel room. Like Premier Inn or? I'm going to say Premier Inn. I think that's a pretty good, yeah. That's okay. That's my line. That's my baseline. But better towels in Premier Inn, definitely. And also everything in my quarters had a lip on it so that, if in bad weather, nothing would fall off the tables. And also I discovered the first night. So when I first got in there, I did a little look around and I found all these bits of paper stuffed behind everything. And I thought, this is really funny. What's this about? And then the first night I realised I got up because everything was vibrating so badly because the, the engines, the engines are so huge. So what, when you say everything's just kind of shaking? Everything's shaking, yeah. I quite like that for sleeping. It's a bit like when you go on the sleeper train up to Scotland and everything's kind of, it sends me to sleep. It's not that kind of, it's not that kind of nice soporific mm. train thing. It's just, it gets into your skull. Okay. <laughs> Gives you really, really vivid dreams. And I, I like routinely dreamt of murdering people. It was quite, it was quite strange. Plus the smell of bunker fuel. Plus the smell of bunker fuel. So to go back to your question, it was actually a really big crew because they had two more than usual. So for this massive ship, the size of four football fields, 7,000 boxes, we had 21 crew. 21? Is that it? That's hardly any. Yeah, and that included two cadets. The biggest container ships now can carry 23,000 boxes and they will not have probably more than 20 people on board. Okay, well, what do the 21 people do all day? So you've got the captain. Was the captain nice? Captain Glenn, I think he was. Glenn, yeah, he was lovely. Lovely, we're still friends. That's good. So he's sort of driving. Well, not really, no. Does it sort of drive itself? No, that's not his job. His job is to oversee. So he will only really be in charge of the helm when we're going into port or anywhere tricky but otherwise it'll be the first officer or the second officer or third officer who'll be at the helm 
And so 21 people doing various bits and bobs, really things like chefs and cooks. One cook called Pinky, one steward, various people in the crew room who are all Filipinos, so the non-officers, and they would have jobs like they were called painters or they would scrape rust off all the time because obviously your ship's going through salt water all the time and things are degrading. So they would do that pretty much constantly. You'd always hear someone grinding something on the deck. So there's a small crew, only 21 people. Do they come from one country? Are they from several countries? How does that work? I'll just describe dinner. So I'm sitting down at dinner and I'm in the officer's mess waiting for whatever Pinky the cook is going to inflict on us today. So I'm sitting next to a Burmese engineer. Opposite me is a Romanian guy. Next to him is a Moldovan. Next to him is an Indian. Next to him is a Brit. Behind me, there is a a Chinese guy um, and two British cadets, which is unusual. And then we're going to go out of the officer's mess and we're going to go across the corridor and we're going to go into the crew room, which is where the non-officers eat. And you'll have some clue as to who the crew are because they've got a rice pot. They've got lots of instant noodles, which is why it's always good to go and hang out in the crew room. And they've got a microwave, which has two buttons, which is ramen for one and ramen for two. So the Filipino crew on my ship, just to give you a flavour of them, one of them was called Archimedes, Archie for short. There was another one called Elvis, who was the bosun. This is like some setup of a joke, but I love it. Archimedes, perfect for shipping. Elvis. Elvis. Well, everyone needs an Elvis. Obviously. Yeah, I think that was the extent of the good names. I mean, they were lovely. They were really chatty and, and lovely. But the Philippines supplies 25% of the world's seafarers. And they, if you look on the Philippines' official lists of exports... They list seafarers. And it's the route that you're doing. So this is London to Singapore. Obviously, we get a lot of stuff from, from Asia. How important are these routes? Do you see container ships everywhere? Given the scale of the industry, as you're in the middle of the Pacific or wherever you are, you know, I'm just trying to picture what things are like. There aren't that many container ships, actually. There's only about 6,000 ah. on the seas. There are many, many more general cargo ships, about 50,000, 60,000. There are various websites you can go to that track ships. You'll see them anywhere. And at the moment, I think it's quite interesting to look at Shanghai because it's, I think it's just come out of lockdown. And Beijing's port is currently closed. So you've got a lot of ships stuck. So you'll just see all these dots just waiting in the sea. Everything is so time sensitive as well. You know, if a ship doesn't come in, you know, if something does interfere with this massive industry, we as consumers feel it. Suddenly you can't get a thing. And that's when it, su- it suddenly stops becoming invisible. How fragile is it, I suppose, is... I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it is fragile, but I think the fragility tends to reveal itself in cost. So it just because it is generally so ridiculously cheap to send something by container, when it doesn't work, it's just that it costs more. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author. And I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You mentioned pirates. Talk to us about the pirates. Did they have parrots? Did they have wooden legs? Did they have eye patches? What's the deal? They had Mm AK-47s. They would capture seafarers and sometimes torture them. Mm -hmm. They would hogtie them and put them on 35 degree hot decks. When I went to sea, there were 542 seafarers being held hostage. So this is Somalia, isn't it? What do they come out in ribs and get the boat and then just nick the stuff? Is that the idea? No, they don't want the stuff. They want the ship and they want the people. They had no means of discharging cargo they didn't have any ports so is it they do it for hostage to get ransoms yeah so they do it for ransoms some ships were held for years on end there was one called the mv iceberg that was held for two or three years there was no awareness at the time and it was sort of 2010 11 12 of how brutal these pirates were you know it was all talked about as being like a bloodless ransom hostage business but it wasn't bloodless and they would treat seafarers horribly. So we were going through the Indian Ocean at the height of Somali piracy. So when we got to the end of Suez, which the crew memorably described as a ditch in a desert, we had to safely travel to a port in Oman called Salala. And then we went into what was called at the time the internationally recognised transit corridor or something, which was a particular lane that we had to travel through, which was allegedly patrolled by counter-piracy naval warships. But because of the size of the Indian Ocean, there's no way that you can monitor the Indian Ocean. What about satellites? Well, what's a satellite going to do? Well, it can sort of tell, you know, if you could, maybe it would be able to detect a pirate ship coming along. If a naval warship was several, several hours away, you know, you just couldn't get there in time. So I was pretty blasé about, and I thought it was really good for the book to go through pirate waters until we got to what was called Pirate Watch. And then the ship changed pretty dramatically. So all the portholes were blocked with bits of cardboard cut out from cardboard boxes in the bond locker, which is like the ship tuck shop. Why would they cover the portholes? What's the... If people come aboard the ship, then you want to make it as difficult as possible for them. So you don't want them peering through the portholes to see where they can access the ship. Oh, I see. Okay. We had blackout blinds on the window. We had people standing mm. on the mm. bridge wings, which are the two bits that jut out from the bridge, uh, sort of little terraces. And it just became, everyone was just really nervous, even though they were all macho braving it out and pretending that they weren't scared. It was really nerve-wracking. And the day before, a Chinese ship had been taken hostage on exactly the same route we'd been on. 
And I think that was held for about six months. So you get past the pirates. Well, there weren't any pirates and you're okay. And you arrive in in Singapore. Were you there for the great unloading? No, because it wasn't stopping in Singapore. It was going on to Lam Shabang, which was the next Ah, so they just dropped you off. So they just dropped me off, yeah. And I was extremely disgruntled. I didn't want to get off. Why did you like it so much? I know that you enjoyed it. But what was, was it just like being on a cruise? No, it was nothing like being on a cruise, which was what was brilliant about it. There was nothing to do. It was, it was great. <laughs> you know, I bet you did. I bet you felt guilty every day that you weren't writing your book. And I took like a rucksack full of worthy books that I should have been reading. And I don't, I don't think I read a single one of them. So what was your day to day? Did you keep keep a diary? I did, yes. I would interview the captain every day at 11 o'clock because he had the best coffee. And also he just said a great life story. And then I just kept busy. I'd walk around the deck when I could. I would go and sit on the foxhole at the front of the ship. I would instruct the crew to watch out for dolphins and tell me if they saw any dolphins. I had a lot of naps. It was great. It was just really relaxing. <laughs> you know what? It actually sounds my idea of heaven. I know. But in 2010, there was no internet. There was no TV. You could not browse. You could not Skype. It was brilliant. Nobody could get hold of you. Wow. I tell you something, that's a really unusual position to be in. There's not many people that can go five weeks nowadays without checking their email or uploading something to Instagram. Well, you could check it when we call in at ports and I would check my email then. But slowly over time, I just really didn't care. I think I basically got entirely institutionalised. And it was completely different if you're a working seafarer, obviously. Because if you're a working seafarer, you're basically, you're either working or you're knackered or you're asleep or, or you're fueling. And I timed how long it took them to eat their meals on board and it was seven minutes. That's it? With no conversation. Yeah. No, that's awful. So they work them hard. I'm fascinated by your journey. It sounds amazing. But I want to just, I want to sort of finish off. I want to just go back to the container and just how transformative it's been and what do you think the future is? And do you think containerization has been a good thing? And can we even ask the question of whether it's been a good thing? Because it is a technology, a bit like the digital revolution, I suppose, that changed everything, changed the way that we manufacture, changed the way we do trade, changed the way we buy things and move things i find it hard to say whether i think it's overall a positive thing but i I don't think the system's going to change anytime soon and i don't think we're going to go back to sailing ships and break bulk cargo and i think the box is going to stay for the foreseeable future but it'd be interesting to see whether the last couple of years whether there is a greater awareness of how we get our stuff and the the price that is paid, not necessarily by us, to get everything so cheaply and so accessible. As we finish off, Rose, give us one nugget that you sort of left with that sort of made you think about globalisation and containers generally and how we get our stuff. What's the thing that sticks out for you the most? I think the thing that sticks out for me is the people who bring us this stuff and I know that you want to talk about the box, but the box has to be moved by people, even if it's fewer people than before. And the shipping industry has this horrible phrase called the human element, which puts humans on a par with the ship and the engine room. And if you talk to the human element who work on these container ships, they'll tell you that probably that they don't particularly enjoy their job. They just do it because they have to. But they have phrases for it like, Dollar for homesickness is one of them. Prison with a salary. Because, you know, you're asking people to miss, you know, the births and birthdays of their children for years on end. And it's a hard life. And I don't think they get much appreciation, as you can see through the pandemic, when they were stranded on board for months on end. So I'd like, you know, when people think about their stuff and they think about the box and they drive past a truck carrying one of those steel boxes, I'd like them to think of 
how it got there, but also who brought it. What a lovely place to end, Rose. I totally agree. I think that's a, a really nice place to stop. Thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure as ever. Likewise. Your book's terrific. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Okay, well, that is it. That's your lot. Now you can look around your room and be amazed at how the, all your stuff got to you by the miracle of the container. Thanks to Rose for being my guest as ever. You should totally buy Rose's book, Deep Sea and Foreign Going. It's brilliant. I've Rose's, all Rose's writing is brilliant, in fact. Don't forget, if you've got a story that you want me to tell you about, then get in touch. We love hearing from you. If you've got a, an invention or a thing or a, an idea or a question, yeah, get in touch. We'll put it on the list. And if we use it, of course, we will name check you. Don't forget also to leave a review and rating for the show. Don't leave a review or a rating for my low-quality Marlon Brando impersonation at the beginning. Do leave a rating for the show. It does help others discover it. I will see you next time. Thank you very much for your company. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.